The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at harvestberry.ca. We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. Um, in the midst of all of this, though, I think it would be appropriate for us to pause and just hear Jesus speak to us for a, a while, don't you think? To let him tell us a story, and um, we're in Luke's gospel today. That probably won't be a surprise to some of you. Um, Luke 16, 19 to 31. And we're going to look at the story. Uh, Jesus tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus, two men. Uh, so the story of two people, uh, we're going to look at their lot in life, start with that. We're going to look at their response to the Word of God, and then we're going to look at their outcome, the outcome of their choices and where they ended up. And so uh, let's read the text together. I'll read this for you. You follow along. This is Luke 16, 19 to 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And beside all all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The story of two people. You've heard their stories now intertwined uh, with each other. Let's uh, speak of the first one. There was one person who obviously had bad things come his way in this life. His name is Lazarus. The only time in any of the parables that Jesus tells that a man is actually named. We find out about him here. He was laid daily at the gate of this rich man, which leads us to believe that he was infirmed in some way, unable to take himself there. Uh, People brought him and laid him at this gate where he could beg. Uh, We know that he was a poor man. We know that he was covered in sores, open wounds, ulcers. It's obvious from the description that uh, his physical condition is uh, quite grave says that he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So he was hungry. He wasn't just poor. He wasn't working poor. He was uh, destitute poor. He was beggarly poor. 
It further, it, it goes on to say that even dogs came and licked his sores. I remember as a young boy in Sunday school, I have this picture etched in my mind um, of uh, dogs coming along and, and um, gently licking as if to empathize with him, licking his sores as if to try and bring healing to him. But that's not what this is. This isn't, first century dogs aren't man's best friend. These aren't service dogs uh, to bring comfort to him. These are street dogs. These are wild dogs. These are dangerous animals. And they've come to lick his sores as a means of their own feeding. His situation is so desperate that the dogs can smell death on him. And they're staying close by, just in case. His situation, I think we would agree, was filled with bad things, as will later be described. Now, your situation may not be as bad as that of Lazarus, but I think many in this room could probably describe their lives as more difficult than easy, more more trial than blessing. That, that you would describe your life in some ways as I've been dealt a bad hand and I just have to play the game with the cards that I've been dealt. But it's not easy. And it, it may not be as extreme as Lazarus. But nevertheless, you can identify with him. Bad things came his way, bad things have come your way, are coming your way, describe and define your life. You have the sores, you've been laid at the gate, you beg for scraps from the table in your own way. There was one man who had bad things come his way in this life and notice who died uh, receiving comfort in heaven. Jesus tells us in verse 22, this is exactly what happened. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, a, a metaphor for heaven, a metaphor for comfort. A death itself is a, we all know this, is a, it's a universal condition. A death is unavoidable. It's happening to everyone in this room. Its process is underway. Hebrews 9.27 makes it clear it is appointed for man to die once and after this the judgment. We're appointed to it. But it's as, as real and as inevitable as it is, there are all kinds of efforts underway to try and stave off or to deny or even to avoid death altogether. I was reading a, a piece this week by Leah McLaren. She's a writer for McLean's. And in a recent column, she said this, we can all empathize with the small child frightened of death. And maybe, um, maybe you have a small child and you've dealt with that recently. They heard of someone dying and they're afraid of it and you're dealing uh, with that uh, with them. Or, or, or maybe you were that child at one time and you remember that. We can all empathize with a small child frightened of death she continues, but many rich and powerful men are still driven by this fear. And instead of trying to accept mortality, they are now determined to overcome it. And it turns out, according to a terrifying piece in the New Yorker, that in the very scientific, serious, scientific quest to extend life, there are basically two camps of people. 
There are the health spanners. The health spanners are those who are looking to extend life by a few more years, a few more quality adjusted life years. This is living a healthy lifestyle. This is exercise. This is uh, right eating, watching your diet. It's, it's, I'm just trying to live as long as I possibly can. And there's probably more than a few people in this room, and that's what you're uh, looking for. You, you'd like to live a little longer. You'd like to be healthier while you are living. And so you're eating better, and you're exercising, and you're taking care of yourself. You would be considered, in some respects, a, a health spanner. The second category, there are the immortalists, she writes. The immortalists who are hoping to do away with death altogether or at least delay it indefinitely. I wish I were making this up. This is not, this is not science fiction, though it sounds like it. This is the way they're going about it, these immortalists. The transfer of looking for a scientific way to, to transfer their conscious, conscious self into some kind of robotic creation. Does that sound like science fiction? It's not. People are spending millions of dollars. The super rich are investing in a way to make this happen. Or, that's one way they're going about it. Or another way they're going about it is trying to find the way to grow human organs so that when something breaks down, they have a replacement part. It's, it's like part source, the car place downtown. You just call a part source, I need a liver, and a guy in a little car drives that over, and they replace it. Now, this is serious. People are going after this. Um, the super rich are investing in this because they're afraid to die. And they know it's coming. They think they can buy themselves out of it. Now I'm just a simple man and I'm not uh, much into science. Uh, but my answer to all of this is uh, no. You're not avoiding it. It's inevitable. Everyone dies. We're appointed to die. And for Lazarus, when he died, he was ushered into a far better reality than the bad things that were happening to him in this life. He was comforted, it says, at Abraham's side. And it's evident, though not stated explicitly in the parable, that he was a man who had read the word of God and accepted his me its message, and that's why he ended up with Abraham. That's why he was in heaven. In the, in the entire parable, we know that Lazarus, if you know anything about literature, Lazarus is the foil to the rich man. He's the one who stands in contrast to or in opposition to the other lead character. And so Lazarus, no doubt, had had heard, as a, as a young Jewish boy, had, had heard the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, had heard them taught in his synagogue by his rabbi. He knew the history of his people. He had heard the prophetic messages from the prophets and had responded to what they taught. He lived as best he could by the writings and by the wisdom of the Psalms and the Proverbs. And he believed he simply believed what he had heard. 
He believed it and he acted upon it. And that's what defined his life. That's what set the course for eternity. Not his circumstances, not his, his poverty, not his infirmity. Those things did not define him. His circumstances were not him. What defined him was what he had read in the scriptures and what he had believed, which led him in death to Abraham's side. You see, he was a man who trusted in what he could not see. And by that, I mean that he was a man who lived by faith. A definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1 1 is uh, that it is the assurance, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Not, not things realized. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I hope to have this. I want to have this. I'm expecting to have this. That's faith. It's the conviction of things not seen. And so if I see my destitute situation, if I see my poverty, if I see my infirmity, that's a challenge to faith. Which is a conviction of things not seen. You remember this uh, encounter after his resurrection, Jesus is revealing himself, showing himself to uh, the apostles and to many others. And uh, there was one uh, of the future apostles who had not yet seen him, and it was Thomas. And of course, he has this reputation for being a, a doubter. And he said to the other disciples, in fact, he said, unless I see him, unless I see the wounds, unless I put my hand in his side where the sword went in, unless I'm a witness to it, I, I just can't believe it. And Jesus, with tremendous grace and, and gentleness, appeared to him, told him to take his hand and put it in his side and to feel the wounds and to see it for himself. And Thomas, in that moment, his eyes seeing the resurrected Christ, made that awesome declaration, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. Now, now listen, that's, that's me and you. That's, that's the entirety of, of our experience. Every single person in this room is a believer on the basis of faith because nobody in this room has ever seen Jesus. I made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ when I was 15 years old. And in these uh, 30 plus years of following Jesus, I've never seen him. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there to witness his crucifixion. I, I didn't stand on the hillside. I, I, I didn't go to the empty tomb. I, I didn't see him resurrected. I've, I've walked with Jesus more than three decades. I've never seen him. But I believe in him by faith. As do all who are in this room. He trusted, Lazarus trusted in what he could not see. The parable makes no mention of Lazarus looking for a fix in this life. He, he didn't seek physical healing, though he was infirmed in a painful way and desperate. Not even to move, able to move himself around. He didn't seek any kind of material compensation or wealth of any kind that might have changed his economic position. He, he didn't seek that. 
And though his circumstances were dire, his sights were set on something beyond this mortal life, a life that had treated him so brutally. His trust was not in temporary fixes, but on an eternal one. Beyond his pain, beyond the trial, beyond his lot in life. It's interesting that some simply can't get there. To look beyond the circumstances of life, so many likely in this room who obsess over this life, who can't get over past traumas, who can't let go of the hurts, who fixate on their pain. These are all things that you can see. They need to be set aside in favor of that which we cannot see, as Lazarus did. A hope that comes through faith in Christ. There was another person who had good things come his way in this life. We all know, we all know people like this. Life just goes their way. They have plenty of money. They never struggle to make ends meet. People respect them. They have a good marriage. Their kids are amazing. Their grandkids even better. <laughs> Everything comes up roses for them. The Irish call this living the life of Riley. The life of Riley. That's this unnamed man, this rich man in Jesus' story. This is exactly his life. Verse 19, Jesus describes him as a man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He, he, his clothes were actually signs of royalty. He only wore designer labels. It says he feasted sumptuously every day. He had the best food and he had plenty of it. And he had it every single day. This isn't that, you know, we buy generic brands all week long and maybe every three months or something. Hey, kids, we're going out to the Olive Garden. It's, it's not that. <laughs> every day he was eating sumptuously, enjoying himself in life, not not facing the trials and the hardships and the aches and pains of life. This was the daily norm for him. It was, everything is awesome, every day. Now when we stop to think about it, we know, we know that being rich in this life or even just having everything go your way, even if you're not rich, but everything's just going your way, we just, we realize that that doesn't add up to anything beyond this life. Like when we think about it, that being rich or having everything go your way in this life doesn't add up to anything beyond this life. We know that. And yet you and I still look at this rich man on its face, just how he lived his life and what he had going on, and we declare him to be successful. Look how successful this man is. 
Because if you take him out of the story and where he ends up and you plop him into our life and any rich person or any person who has life just going so well in their life, that's exactly, look how successful they are. Look at how much they've accomplished in their life. Look at all that they've done. Look at all that they have. They're so successful and we look at Lazarus and we declare him to be a failure. One contributes to the economy. One creates jobs. One adds to the social fabric. The other is a consumer at best and a dependent at worst. One gives back to the community. One only takes from the community. Such a dangerous way to look at it all. I mean, God's people need to look at this differently, don't you think? We should never envy those with much in this life. Listen now, do not envy those who have much in this life. Because every dollar a person has makes it that much more difficult to follow Jesus. Over in Matthew, Jesus said, it's easier for, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. An, an impossibility. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Every dollar you gain makes it a little harder to follow Jesus. Ease of life. Whether wealth or not, just life is going your way. Ease of life is not con conducive to saving or growing faith. It's actually in the trials and the hardships that our faith grows the most. Self-sufficiency deceives the self. And if you have so much in this life that you don't need Jesus, I mean, you don't need Jesus until you die. And then you do need Jesus. But by then it's too late. And that's what happened. Like Lazarus, he was a man, notice, who died. But unlike Lazarus, this man suffered anguish in hell. Verse 22 tells us this. The rich man also died and was buried by the way, burial was a dignity that Lazarus did not merit, according to the story. It seems that even in death itself, the rich man was better off than Lazarus, but not beyond death. Verse 23 in Hades, hell, Gehenna, Sheol, whatever you want to call it. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. It's an interesting picture of eternity. And we want to be careful about making too much of it because it appears here in the midst of a parable or a story. You don't take every single element of a parable and say that it's true and this is the way it is so much as you look for the main point of what Jesus is trying to say in the parable. This is the only place in the scriptures that we have a description like that. And so I don't want to press the details too closely. But if this is an accurate depiction, it is the only depiction of heaven like this that we have where there is a conversation happening between heaven and hell. Where those in hell at least can see those in heaven, Abraham could see back down as well. It's curious 
in this first bit of dialogue that the rich man calls Lazarus by name. Do you find that interesting? I mean, he knows him. He knows him. I mean, he doesn't just know him because they both died and they were standing in the line together. Isn't that the guy that he stood at my gate? He was at my gate. He was outside my house. Day after day, it's Lazarus. He ate scraps from my table. Despite the fact that he recognizes him, he also realizes in this moment that Lazarus' plight had not moved him at all to help him. The neglect of this vulnerable man was an indicator of a heart that was not for God. James McDonald puts it this way, if your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If your faith hasn't changed you in terms of personal holiness and your walk with Christ becoming like him, and if your faith hasn't changed you in terms of your compassion level toward those who are on the margins of society, if your faith hasn't changed you, then it hasn't saved you. This week, while I was uh, preparing the message on Thursday, in fact, you know that our offices now are at 7 George Street, so the renovations continue downstairs, but we're upstairs in our office, and so we're in this neighborhood, and I've mentioned this several times, that we're in an area where there's a number of homeless people. The food bank is right next door, uh, but there are homeless people that live in various ravines and, and gullies and stuff that are around this neighborhood. And on Thursday, I was at um, Emily's desk, uh, talking to her, she's reception, so she's kind of out in the main part of the office, and, I, and um, a gentleman comes walking in, and initially he caught my attention because he was wearing a Montreal Canadiens jacket. <laughs> Obviously, a very, very classy gentleman. <laughs> so so he, he walks in, and, um, and he's asking for Pastor Todd. So I've never met this man before, but he'd obviously done some research. And in fact, he's, he's come by our offices before when we were up on Bayfield Street and uh, he had a need and he, uh, so I sat down with him and um, began to chat with him and uh, find out his name is Steve and um, he has uh, some particular needs and some health needs. He's in his late 60s and, um, and some really big health challenges. I asked him where he lived and he said he lived in a tent just down the road. And... I'm sitting there going, and, I, I, and I'm, I'm cautious, I'm skeptical. I know there are those who play the system. But understand my position in this moment. I'm studying the story of the rich man and Lazarus. <laughs> and a man has come to our gate whose name is Steve. And he says he has a need. And we have a certain protocol we're supposed to follow and I didn't follow it and I gave him more than we're supposed to and I handed him something that met his need whether it was legit or not, I don't know and it doesn't matter, does it? Because I, I couldn't go back to my desk and begin to write paragraphs about the neglect of a vulnerable man as an indicator of a heart that is not for God. 
This rich man was raised in Israel under the covenant. He learned the Torah. He heard the prophets. He knew the story of his people. And he was as unsaved as any pagan in the nations that surrounded Israel. He was as unsaved as the Roman soldiers who occupied their land. Because nothing had changed in his life. So there he is in Hades and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water. Cool my tongue. I'm in anguish. And again, we have this description of hell. It's again in a metaphor. We have a number of these. Matthew 25, hell is described as outer darkness. In many places in the scriptures, including Revelation 20, verse 14, it's described as a lake of fire. And as with all descriptions of heaven and hell, the writers are using the best words and the best word pictures they have available to them. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, they're writing these things for us. But we understand that we live in a physical realm and these descriptions of heaven and hell are in a whole different realm, a spiritual realm. We don't even really know how to describe where it is or what it is. so incomprehensible to our finite minds but here's what I know you can take what we understand from the metaphors what I know about hell the most important thing to know about hell is this you don't want to go there whatever it is wherever it is you don't want to go there So you know relief is coming for his anguish. Verse 25, Abraham says back to him, child, remember? In your lifetime, how it went for you? Do you remember how you had all the good things? You remember the sumptuous food? You remember the comfortable living arrangements? You, you remember the servants? Do you remember the clothing you wore? Remember all your friends and family? Remember how healthy you were? You remember your you remember it? Do you remember it all? You had it good. Lazarus in like manner had bad things. Now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. This is the great reversal. And then Abraham goes on to say, besides all this, between us and you, there's this great chasm that's been fixed. The situation is irreversible. No one's going from one place to the other or back. Eternal separation from God and his goodness that's the reality of hell. Eternal separation from God and his goodness. And you know, Jesus went there. In that, in that moment when he was on the cross, he went there. He was taking upon himself all of the sins of the world. He was taking your sins and my sins upon himself. And as the weight of all of that was being piled on him, because we know our God to be a holy God, because we know our God to be a God who cannot even look on sin, that in that moment when the Son of God took all our sin upon himself, the Father turned his back to the Son, and the Son cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
the Son of God experienced hell. When the Trinity was torn asunder, when the Son was separated from the Father, nothing is more horrible than the prospect of being separated from God. Jesus experienced it. And he did it for our sake. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This rich man, while denying God during his life, had nevertheless enjoyed God's goodness. You see, that's that's the thing we need to remember. If you're here today, and it's likely we have people that have been invited here today, and this isn't your normal gig for a Sunday morning, and you're here now, and you would even call yourself, I'm not a believer, I don't believe in Jesus, this isn't my thing. I'm glad that you're here. But I need you to understand that you receive many good things from God that you may not acknowledge or realize. That life itself is a gift from God, that the family that you have, the friends that you have, the health that you're enjoying, all of the material blessings that have come your way, the fact that you get to live in this country. We could list many, many things, and I could tell you right now that all of those good things that you have all come from the Father, even though you don't worship Him, you don't love Him, you don't serve Him, you don't follow Him, you don't believe Him. It's something that we call common grace. That there's just a common grace that God has put over the world that believers and unbelievers alike share. But if you take that grace away, what you have is hell. A place where God isn't. A place that Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 as being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And so this man's situation isn't changing. He's in torment and faced with the finality of his choices. He switches tactics and arguments in verse 27. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, send Lazarus to my father's house. Lazarus is dead. So the plan is to send a man back from the dead to talk to his brothers. I have five of them. He wants them to be warned lest they also come into this place of torment. Now, I don't especially like, I hope it's okay for, for me as your pastor to admit this, I don't especially like the doctrine of hell. I don't like that it's real. I don't like that, that I have to teach it. I don't like that it comes up in this particular moment as we're working through this gospel. I don't like it. I wish that I could find a way to skirt it. I wish that I could find a way to teach our way out of it, to say that it isn't real. Because it's crushing to me when I see this man in torment, in anguish. It's it's crushing to me to hear him plead with Abraham, have mercy on me. It's crushing to me to to hear him agonize over the plight of his brothers who are all going to end up there. See, he too was a man who had read the word of God but rejected its message. 
See, his concern is because he knew his brothers were raised exactly as he was raised. Their circumstances were the same as his. They had all read the word of God, but they had rejected what they had heard. Abraham says to him, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They have the Bible. Let them read the Bible and listen to that. They should hear. They should listen. They should do what it says. They should heed the warnings. They should act upon it. It should change their lives. You say, like, how, did, how do we really know that they knew the Bible, that he knew the Bible. Well, unlike today, in the time of Jesus, all Jewish people would have had a significant understanding of the Bible. They would have memorized, in fact, large portions of it. Biblical illiteracy today is, is significant, but it wasn't back then. Today, we've, we've just entered into this whole new realm of people don't know anything about the Bible. But that's only really happened in the last few decades. When I was a kid in public school, I went to public school all of my educational time. I, I went to a public elementary school, and I can remember uh, dans la classe de français, on a memorisé Psalm 23. In French class, we memorized Psalm 23 in my public school. I remember in high school, my English teachers would teach us Shakespeare, but they'd have a Bible in their other hand and be showing us all of the allusions that Shakespeare had in his plays that referred to things that were in the Bible, parallels to biblical characters and themes. And nobody was afraid of that. It's so different uh, today. In my history class, we would talk of Christianity and Western civilization alongside of each other. In my day, of course, more people went to church, more people had at least a rudimentary understanding of the Bible, but none of that is true today. But in first century Israel, think about it, the Old Testament was actually their legal code. The Old Testament was their history book. The Old Testament was their songbook, their poetry. It told their stories. It was their collection of sermons. It was everything to them. In every level of education, the Jewish people would be studying what we know as the Old Testament. They had no TV and no movies and no recorded songs, no internet, no magazines, no books. People learned these stories by heart. And so this man, without a doubt, knew the Bible. But rejected its message and was instead a man who relied only on what he could see. And this plays out in his conversation with Abraham. The rich man had so much to look at in his life that it kept him from ever seeing God. It kept him from seeing the needs of the people around him, including Lazarus. And so he makes a pitch to save his brothers based on his approach to life, what he could see what they would see. So he says in verse 30, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Now that sounds plausible. If someone is raised from the dead and comes and tells you something, you would think that's a pretty plausible argument that someone might pay attention to that. It sounds logical. If they see it, if they see a resurrected person, they'll get it. 
And then he goes on and he knows, he knows exactly what needs to happen when they do see it. They need to see this. It's amazing to me that after we die, how correct our theology is. This resurrected man is going to go back to his brothers. They're going to know he was dead and now he's alive. He's going to preach to them. He's going to tell them the truth and they're going to agree with what he's saying and they're going to turn. This is, this is the rich man's theory. They're going to agree with what the resurrected man says and they're going to turn their life around from the way they're living to the way God wants them to live. This, this is his plan. And he actually uses the word repent because he knows what needs to happen. And he knows his brothers are on the same program that he had been on. He knows they're headed for the same eternal destination. And he's trying to save them from the fate that he is now condemned to. And his premise all the way along is that miracles are going to convince people. And you would think that the Bible would support that kind of premise when in fact it does just the opposite. The Bible does not support the premise that people will be convinced by miracles. Take for example in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel are making plans to leave. Pharaoh isn't so convinced. Moses keeps going to him. Ten plagues come down on the heads of the Egyptians. Ten! Every single time Pharaoh digs his heels in deeper, his rebellion becomes stiffer, his resistance stronger. When he finally is compelled by the death of his own son with the 10th plague, he finally relents and lets them go. But 10 miracles, 10 signs from God were not enough because still he sent his armies in pursuit of the children of Israel. For their part, the children of Israel see the 10 plagues and none of them affect them. There's 10 miracles. They, they see the parting of the Red Sea. They walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side. They see the Egyptian army utterly destroyed before their eyes. While in the wilderness, God gives them bread from heaven, water from a rock, quail to eat. He protects them all the way along. And still, they murmur and they complain and they ask Moses to take them back to Egypt. You see, we, we don't get convinced by mind-boggling signs. These things don't stir us up to believe. In the wake of miracles, people continue in their stiff rebellion. They rationalize away what they saw. They try to purchase the ability or they continue to murmur and complain. And most of the time what it produces is, that was awesome, God, but what have you done for me lately? Jesus had predicted his own death and resurrection repeatedly and when it actually happened, the religious leaders who had heard him say, I'm going to die and be resurrected, the religious leaders double down and they cook up. People think this is new, but false news and alternate facts are not a new thing. Verse 31, so Abraham says to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Do you hear the prophetic foreshadowing here? Jesus is telling them how it's going to go. When he dies and when he's resurrected from the dead, this is how it's going to go. 
In advance, Jesus is warning them that his own resurrection would be met with skepticism and resistance and that on the whole, Israel would reject him as their Messiah. The miracle of the resurrection, let alone all of the other signs he performed, not enough, not enough to convince them. And if you cannot get to a place of agreeing with God and turning to him, what we call repentance, then it's not because you don't have enough evidence or because you have not personally witnessed a miracle, but it is because you have closed your heart and mind to what the word of God has already said. It's not about the miracle. It's about the message that was fulfilled. Two people, two choices, two outcomes. And what will they say about you when the time comes? Which of these two people will most closely resemble how your life will end up? Which side of the great chasm will you end up on? The choice is yours. The choice is yours right now. And Romans 10, 8 and 9 will really close with this, speaks to this choice that you must make. The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, many in this room believe and have celebrated the resurrection today, but there are some, no doubt, that are not. Whatever path they're on, a, a path of ease or a path of difficulty, God, I pray that they would make a choice in this moment to believe your word and to act upon it, to believe in something they can't see, and won't see until they're at Abraham's side. Help them in these moments to be convinced. Not because they saw a man raised from the dead, but because of what they've heard here today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at And remember, you are loved.